Hi, Michael Wright here, one of your White Silence hosts. I am back in the feed to tell you about a new podcast from Stuff. My colleagues Adam Dudding and Eugene Bingham have spent the last 18 months investigating the story of New Zealand's most notorious free love community, Centrepoint. The result is a 12-part series called The Commune. It was released earlier this month and we're dropping the first episode here so you can listen in. Listeners of a certain age might recall Centrepoint and particularly the name Bert Potter. Potter was the guy who founded Centrepoint in the late 70s on a philosophy of open sexuality and psychotherapy. Centrepoint first intrigued and then scandalised middle New Zealand before finally collapsing in 2000 after a string of sex abuse and drug dealing convictions. But as Adam and Eugene discovered, there's a lot more to the story than that. So here's episode one. You can find all the other episodes on the usual platforms or at stuff.co.nz slash the commune. This episode of the commune contains strong language and sexual references. I knew he was in prison and I didn't know he was sick. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what I was doing, but yes, I remember the media wanting comment. What are we going to say? Bonnie and I were in a supermarket somewhere, and Bonnie got a text on her phone saying Bert had died. And it just came to me, you know, I acknowledge the grief of his family, but for most of us, it's just a huge relief. I wanted him dead. I think I wanted him dead for a long time. Bonnie went something like, good riddance, fucker, or whatever. And then, the, you know, the hours that followed, I felt like I was stepping out of this long, dark, black cloak that stretched back through matter and time. There was like a, a loosening and a lightning and a freeing, and I didn't know I was wearing it. So it was like a, an unveiling. So I hadn't realised how deep those hooks were into me. One woman told me she just had to go in and view the body just to be sure. And when Angie texted me and told me that he was dead, I had a party. (laughs) I had a party that night. I've been warned this afternoon that I'm not to talk too much because I have to get a little bit carried away and try and cover the the whole story of Centrepoint um, in half an hour, which can't be done. After this short talk, um, don't feel you have to rush away. Those of you who haven't had afternoon tea, it's still available for you. If you want another cup, that's fine. If you want to talk to any of the uh, residents here, by all means, do so. Ask questions. I'm Adam Dudding, and this is The Commune. Episode 1, Open Day. Like the larger crowd than we usually have on a Saturday afternoon. Um, it's April 1981. The voice you can hear, it's a guy called Bert Potter. He's showing some visitors around his home. It's a commune, a place called... You've already been welcome to Centrepoint. Centrepoint. Like Bert says... There's a decent-sized crowd here. Today's an open day. 
where members of the public can come and check the place out. And people are really curious. Because Centrepoint's getting a bit of a name for itself. Some of you have had a good look around. Uh, I've no doubt some of you have had your illusions shattered about the place. Others have probably had some of them confirmed. This tape's one of hundreds the commune will record over the years, capturing the utterances of Bert Potter. Because his followers believe he's onto something special. What we're trying to do here is set up an alternative lifestyle. In the 22 years that Centrepoint will stick around, Alternative hardly begins to cover it. By the time it's finally shut down, Centrepoint will have left a trail of wreckage. Families torn apart, marriages ruined, many millions of dollars lost, and a surprisingly large number of once law-abiding people behind bars. Just as surprising, though, are the bizarre ways in which the boundaries of the law and of morality will be bent and stretched and broken. There was a lot of things like that where you'd think, what the fuck? And you never questioned them because there were so many what the fucks, you know? But all that's yet to come. Because when it started, there were only good intentions. These people wanted to find a better way of living and actually to help people. And you'll still find people today who'll say Centrepoint was a good thing, even a great thing. Let's get back to that open day in April 1981. You'll find that the people here are very human people. We haven't got two heads. We don't drink blood at midnight every full moon or anything like that. Centrepoint's in Auckland, the largest city in Aotearoa, New Zealand, at the bottom of the South Pacific Ocean. Auckland's not exactly known for being at the cutting edge of social experimentation, but here on the outskirts of town, in a place called Albany, on Auckland's North Shore, Bert Potter and his followers see themselves as trailblazers. We're fairly radical in our views here. In fact, we're pretty radical in the views of most of the world. We've had Americans out here who have been studying uh, communes throughout the world, um, they come here and they find that we're really in the forefront of the community movement. Some of what Bert says... We call it a spiritual community because... Would be well, familiar in any of those places where Western sensibilities were giving way to some sort of Eastern mysticism. We do believe that each individual has to find their own spirituality, has to find their own way to God. And so that's what we're basically but here for. Now, there's a lot about Centrepoint that's a bit different. You may have been a little intrigued at the lack of doors on our toilets. That's something that seems to uh, get to most people who go around. Yeah, that struck me as odd. That struck me as quite bonkers. Open showers, open toilets. That was something that I was like, no, that seems a bit too much. I thought that it was a bit weird, but it was where I lived now, so I kind of got used to it. You all had to use the toilet, and according to one person, only had one square of toilet paper. I mean... God, adults agreed to this. There were no doors. So there was no, no way that you could poo in peace. It just seems so mean. I don't think there's ever been a piece written about Centrepoint that didn't mention that there were toilets without doors. You know, people are obsessed with the privacy of defecation. And there's the thing Centrepoint is famous for. One of the other things, and this has probably brought a number of you along, is the sexuality that we deal with here again quite openly. He was into sex every day. Sex, drugs and rock and roll. Sex. Sex. Being sexually promiscuous got you to the top. 
sex. There are dozens of different ways of having sex. By the way, the missionary position, man on top, is not the most common throughout the world. That's a, a very, very much, a, well, as it says, a missionary position. Sometimes I would walk around and just think, this is just so beautiful. That's Barry Leslie. So my name is Barry Leslie. I'm and not thumb while you're doing All right. A bit of thumbing's okay, but I know I'm going to use this bit, so... <laughs> We'll start again. <laughs> yes, the nerves, the nerves. No, it's fine, it's fine. Something is good. I like something. It's just You're going to get to know Barry pretty well. We've spent a lot of time with her over the past year finding out about Centrepoint. My name's Barry Leslie. I was a foundation member of Centrepoint, uh, so joined the group that was forming in 1977 and uh, was in the group for 13 years. Oh, and... Just, there's one thing we need to get out of the way straight away because you're possibly wondering. Why Barry? Well, um, yes, my name's been problematic all my life. I was the second daughter and I think I had a boy's name ready, though my parents have never admitted to that. Um, my mother said she thought it was a very pretty name, which that doesn't work. It was a, a Anyway, Barry, which by the way is spelt with an I, not a Y, is in her late 70s now. Back at that open day in 1981, she was one of about 100 people living at Centrepoint. When she came to the commune, she was a mother of two, but then she and her new husband had another daughter. Being pregnant, being a new mum in the community, these were some of Barry's best times at Centrepoint. What I just love about that is what I call the woman at the well. When you're in your nuclear home with your two babies, you're so alone. But what was absolutely wonderful, just the women, just the the sharing, the um, being able to sit and nurse your baby or talk or just that I absolutely love about community living. And it was also there were always women pregnant, always women having babies. You know, my third baby, there were five of us all pregnant and giving birth within two months of each other. And so it was just this wonderful little group. And whereas I'd had a bit of postnatal depression after my other two in a nuclear house, not a sign of it with this. Another thing Barry loved? The site itself was just a beautiful valley and there were streams in the property, two forks of a stream. And apparently the food was pretty good too. These guys were sort of hippies, but they didn't all eat like hippies. It wasn't just mung beans and lentils. No, it wasn't super vegetarian or anything, but it was absolutely not into that kind of communal living. So yeah, plenty of meat at dinner, bacon and eggs for breakfast, or pancakes, or toast, whatever you wanted. So I just focused on muesli because that's what I had. So there they are, the utopian community of Centrepoint living in a beautiful valley on the outskirts of Auckland. Great food, new mums sharing baby-caring duties, an inspiring leader who welcomes the public. Quite a lot of sex. Sounds kind of interesting, right? While we don't have any creed... That recording of Bert Potter talking at the Centrepoint Open Day, that's from April 1981. So I would have been ten and a half at the time. At that point, I'd never been to Centrepoint, but I'd certainly heard of it. 
I grew up close by in a place called Torbay, which is one of the string of beach suburbs that run up the east coast of Auckland's North Shore. Albany, where Centrepoint had planted itself, was a bit further inland, and back then it was still pretty rural. My dad kept dozens of chickens at our place in Torbay, and I'd sometimes go with him as he drove to pick up big sacks of maize and chook pellets from a supplier in Albany. That drive would take us along Oteha Valley Road and past the end of Mills Lane, which was the service road leading to Centrepoint itself. 1981, I'd just started at North Cross Intermediate School. On my way home from school, I'd stop at a little shop. We call it a dairy in New Zealand. It was right on the intersection of Oteha Valley Road and East Coast Bays Road. And most afternoons, there'd be a small crowd of North Cross boys would jostle around the Space Invaders arcade game in the dairy. If you'd saved your pocket money... You might buy something healthy. The milky market is strong and tough. To snack on as you watched. It was at North Cross that I started to hear the word Centrepoint more often. It was the intermediate school closest to the commune, so that's where Centrepoint's 10, 11, 12 year olds went. And there was a certain amount of gossip that went with that. Aotearoa New Zealand has long been accused, with some justification, of being 10 or 20 years behind the rest of the world in social trends. Kind of conservative, kind of boring but it also liked to think of itself as kind of tolerant. So there was a commune around the corner where people had a lot of sex. Bit weird, but whatever. So a lot of the Centrepoint kids had long hair. It's the 1980s. Whatever. As it happened, I had long hair too, like down to my bum long, which meant that at the start of each new school year, I'd have to explain to my new classmates that no, I wasn't in fact a girl. Also, quite a few people assumed that given all that hair, I must be from Centrepoint. Nah. But same thing. Whatever. So yeah... If you grew up in the vicinity, Centrepoint was something you knew about, but probably didn't especially care about. I probably became aware of Centrepoint in in third form, so when I was about 12, 13. This is Anna. She's... I'm your sister. Older sister and much smarter. One of my sisters. She's three years older than me, so she was encountering the Centrepoint kids at the local high school, Long Bay College. But Yeah, so at Long Bay, I had friends in my class who were from Centrepoint. Again... For her, Centrepoint was just there in the background, no big deal. And that was the kind of family we came from, bohemian a bit, hippie a bit. And so Centrepoint felt like a natural thing to me. I thought they sounded neat. The only thing I could think of thinking this week about Centrepoint that I remembered was that the story was, and I don't know if it's true, was that the toilets had no doors. Always the toilets. In any case, by the time I got to Long Bay College... Centrepoint was still there, just in the background. I had classmates who lived there, though no close friends. And then I was off to uni, off flatting, off to see the world. So by the early 90s, I was out of the country. Now, the internet barely existed then. And apart from the old newspaper article posted by my mum, and when I say posted, I mean cut out with a pair of scissors, folded into a stamped envelope, dropped into a literal post box. Apart from reading those, I had almost no idea what was going on in the news back home in New Zealand. Which meant that when the shit really hit the fan for Centrepoint, when the stories started to come out, I don't think I even heard about it. Then, by the time I moved home a decade later, it seemed Centrepoint was all over, bar the shouting. It all felt very past tense. But the thing that has struck me again and again while we've been making this podcast is that for so many people, Centrepoint is still very much present tense. At that open day in 1981, 
Bert Potter assured visitors that Centrepoint people didn't drink blood at midnight, that they didn't have two heads. Yet all the same, 40 years on, there are hundreds of people who are still wrestling with their memories and their stories, with the rumours and the lies and the truths about Centrepoint. Who's who are the two in that photo there? The older geezer with the hat. Early on in my research for this podcast, I made a few phone calls and sent a few emails to some people who'd been living at Centrepoint, testing the waters before committing to the project. So my microphone doesn't matter a hell of a lot, to be quite honest. There was one interview that was kind of urgent, though, because the person in question, a man who'd lived at Centrepoint off and on through the 1980s, was really ill. He said he only had months to live. But for now, he was still feeling OK, and if I wanted to interview him, we could do it straight away. So without a great deal of preparation, so, I set um, off to meet him. But yeah, so I, I basically, you know, I want to hear your story, and then... Um, I went to his home expecting just to dip my toe into the Centrepoint story, but pretty quickly I was in up to my neck. This guy, he was really observant, someone with a lovely sense of humour, and a surprisingly upbeat attitude towards his own impending death. He, he talked to me for hours about his time in the community. He made it sound like a real adventure, including the time when the community was living in buses for a while. Must have been fun. Yeah, he said, it was a hell of a fun. It was terrific fun. When I asked him why he'd gone to Centrepoint in the first place, he, he got right to the point. He simply had never known a place where sex was so freely available. But he said it wasn't just physical, there was an intimacy about it that he found hugely appealing. Also, he liked the communal life, and he was already deeply into the therapy and encounter group scene, so Centrepoint was just perfect, really. He was a great talker. He told me about the human potential movement and psychotherapy and this thing people used to do at Centrepoint called blowing off. He talked about the clean club and the consensus decision-making that meant that meetings could go on and on forever. Naturally, I was interested in Bert Potter, and so I asked him lots about him. Describe to me to what extent Bert was controlling of the way people thought and acted. How much of an autocrat was he? He thought about that question and about exactly what he did think of Bert. He talked about how Bert was a remarkably talented therapist but also really arrogant and a bit of a know-it-all. He said Bert had a way of attracting strong, impressive women to him and he reckoned it was those strong women who were at the core of Centrepoint. He did talk a little about the things that happened at Centrepoint that ended up in the papers but said, without wanting to minimise anything, these things happen in all sorts of settings and throughout all tiers of society. So... He wasn't sure you could entirely blame Centrepoint itself for all that. I came away feeling pretty good about the interview. This ageing ex-Centrepointer had been really candid, really open. He'd defended the place against its critics, but didn't come across as defensive. And he told some really good stories. Very interesting. Sad that so many can be influenced by one little bastard. The Commune. Free love, group therapy, and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. A few days later, I texted to thank him for a great interview and to give him my email address. He'd said he might pass on some contacts for other former members I might want to talk to. He didn't reply that day. 
nor the next. But then, a long text saying he'd had a huge change of heart, didn't want to take part at all, didn't want his name used, didn't want me using that recording. That long, relaxed interview, during which he told shaggy dog stories and made me cups of tea and cracked jokes and reminisced with a twinkle in his eye, he was now describing it as raking over the coals, and he said he expected that the resulting story would be prurient and sensationalised. This was a small part of my life many years ago, he wrote, and he certainly wouldn't be handing over any other contact details to me. Sometimes it happens after an interview. People say more than they intended and regret it. But there was a tone to this message I hadn't really come across before. He said he hadn't appreciated that some questions had touched on the subject of guilt. Was there, he asked, something about my own past regarding Centrepoint that I felt guilty about? This felt weird, having the focus turned back on me. I had told him that apart from driving past the place and passing acquaintance of a few Centrepoint kids at school, I barely had any connection with the place. Guilt? No. It was only much later, once I'd heard many more accounts of the social dynamics of Centrepoint, and especially this thing they liked to call feedback, that I realised the accusation in the middle of that text message, that judo-style flipping of the roles of interrogator and interrogatee, that was classic Centrepoint. If something's bothering you, well, that's a you problem, and you really should look inside yourself. In any case, now I didn't quite know what to do with the recording. Both legally and by the standard ethics of journalistic engagement, I was justified in using the tape. The consent had been settled well before I turned on the recorder. But somehow it felt yucky to simply ignore a dying man's wishes. So I put the audio to one side to worry about later. Then a global pandemic broke out, and for a while face-to-face interviews became near impossible. So I backed up the files on a hard drive, and tried to put Centrepoint out of my mind. I got the news a few months later that this guy had indeed died. Then, in early 2021, I picked up the Centrepoint project again, this time alongside my staff colleague, Eugene Bingham. And we started looking for more people who could talk to us. So where are you there? That's me. Oh, yes, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, so cute. That included some of those Centrepoint kids I knew back at school. Oh, so so many of these people. Oh my gosh, she's amazing. She's a shaman in, the, in England now. She was so beautiful, witchy woman. Yeah. Yeah, people she, like Angie Meeklejohn. She arrived at Long Bay College when I was in sixth form, what we now call year 12, so everyone's around 16, 17. I remember you most from the musical. Yeah, yeah. That's we were both in the school musical. I dug out some old photos to show her. Oh, these are the pyjama game ones. I remember these. Oh, my God, that's us too. That's our duet. Which, oh, we actually had a duet. Had a duet. So oh I, went, I went on the internet. Listen, listen to this. Picture this. You're waiting three hours for her to come home from a date. That's the soundtrack from the Hollywood film version of the pyjama game. I couldn't find a recording of the Long Bay College performances. The duet's a bit of a comedy number. Angie is Mabel this matronly character who's advising Heinze, that's my character, not to overreact to his girlfriend's cheating ways. I would trust her. I would trust her. And Eugene was pointing out that thematically, it's quite a centre point song, really. It's saying, you know, you just trust your, your romantic partners. Don't be jealous. Don't be jealous. 
Chelsea was playing. <laughs> or something. Oh it's... my god, yes. If you um if you like went up and slapped somebody or, you know, physically grabbed them or whatever and because they were, you know, sleeping with your partner or whatever else, you had to serve that person dinner for a week. Or Bert would give you some task, you know, very publicly in the public dining room. Angie also put Eugene and me in touch with her younger sister, Renee. One, two, three, one, two, three. And we heard from a number of other people who'd been at Centrepoint. Uh, do you know of that sex commune down the road? Yeah, that's where I live. I'll be very interested to see how people respond to that. So I'm right next to the modem now on the internet, so hopefully that makes a difference. Do you really want your wife being pursued by all these men? We talked to a former mayor. You're most welcome to sit and listen and people who lived near the community. They must have very sensitive equipment. They are quite sensitive. As well as people who taught the Centrepoint kits. It's 100 years old, that clock. We met some people who'd taken a very close interest in the community. Oh, you're really coming into the clinch, aren't you? Zach! I've, I've, I've gotten his name, Zach. Zach, come on, get away. He's very lovely. Yes, get away, lie down. And spoke to others who simply watched from afar and wondered just what on earth was going on. Do you always talk so fast? Possibly. Yeah. Mostly it's when quite hard on people's hearing's a bit impaired. And inevitably, a number of people didn't want to talk to us at all. Sorry, bye. <laughs> Have the courage and to know what to do, to be able to just move out and do the things you'd really like to do. The Centrepoint Commune got properly underway in early 1978. But to understand what it was all about, it's actually worth rewinding just a little back to 1969. <laughs> specifically to July 1969 and the issue of Playboy magazine that came out that month. There were some pretty interesting articles in Playboy that year. An interview with Bill Cosby, a piece about the federal budget by John Paul Getty, lifestyle advice too, how to wear a tie or drive a sand buggy. The magazine adverts are a bit of a time capsule as well. Record turntables, pipe tobacco, cognac, a tape club that would send you cassettes of the Bee Gees or whoever. And yeah, it's Playboy. So there's a dozen pages of semi-naked pin-up girls. Back then, Playboy was super successful. Millions of copies sold all over the world. And that July 1969 edition found its way into the hands of a businessman in Auckland, New Zealand, named Herbert Thomas Potter. Yeah, that's the Bert Potter we've already met. But at this point... Bert's still pretty conventional. A married man in his mid-40s with children whose company sells timber treatments to protect your home from borer beetles. Anyway, Bert reads the article on page 80, which has the title Letting Go. The piece is mostly about the Esalen Institute in California. This was a fashionable new retreat centre at the heart of the human potential movement, which was a sort of new-agey blend of psychotherapy and Eastern mysticism and Western philosophy. And in practice, at Esalen, the movement also included quite a lot of communal hot tub sessions and group cuddles and public orgasms. So Bert Potter saw this article and liked what he was reading. So much so that two years later, he visited Esalen himself. He spent three months there, watching and listening and soaking it up. So... Jump forward again a few years to the mid-70s, and Bert, with all that Esalen knowledge under his belt, is right at the centre of a group of people who share his fascination with therapy and the human potential movement. 
1977, this group decides to have a go at communal living. There are 25 of them to start with, the originals, and by early 1978, with Bert as their leader, they've banded together and bought a large piece of land with a few buildings on it, and set to work creating a community. They were an interesting bunch, Barry says. There was a GP, Keith, a former missionary to Papua New Guinea who'd always had an interest in counselling as part of his medical practice. There was Don, a draftsman. Ulrich, a chemical engineer who'd worked in commercial paper milling. Mike, a schoolteacher. They were all soon joined by Dave, a businessman, and his wife. She would become one of the main therapists. There were teachers, there were craftspeople, then we had tradespeople, plumbers, builders, medical people, but loved medical people, so we had doctors, psychiatrists, nurses, never a lawyer joined. (laughs) Barry was drawn to one couple in particular, Annie and Bill. I really liked Annie. Annie was a therapist and Bill was a psychiatrist. And they'd previously lived in a community up north, so they knew what living together in a group could be like. And then there were others, like this woman. I think I was the first person to make an application to the trustees who had been doing the setting up. This is Barbara. I'm Barbara. I was at Centrepoint from 1978 until 2000. For me, it was also about support as a mother, because I was told... By Bert, you know, the children are community children now. So when I struggled and went to talk about my struggles, I was reassured that there's always someone else around who does know, something like that. So for Barbara, it was about therapy, but also about getting help as a mum. And then there was this guy. Hello. We're going to call him... Robert. I was one of the founding members of Centrepoint Community Growth Trust... It was an amazing place. We made it an amazing place. And it was everything I ever dreamt of. He and his wife were among the originals. Now, Robert is, and was then, a very practical man. Handy with a digger and a chainsaw. Knows how to build a fence. How to tend your fruit trees. I mean, there's stuff he knows instinctively that I bet you've never thought of before. It's very easy to shovel off a flat, hard bit of ground. Mm -hmm. It's hell of a hard to shovel off on dirt without your shovel digging in. Never thought about that. You get the picture. Robert is your classic Kiwi man of the land. If you're thinking, okay, not the sort of bloke to be in touch with his feelings or keen to talk about emotions in front of a group of people, you're wrong. He loved that. I'm sure I became a a different person in, in so many different ways. I remember thinking one part of it, hell... You've done so much for me, I could, I could give you 20 bucks a week for the rest of my life. That would be not nearly enough for the goodness I feel that I've got out of this. And they weren't just sitting around in a room and chatting. These therapy sessions were intense, lasting up to seven days. Seven days sitting in one room with up to 20 other people. One toilet, no door. One shower or one bath. Yeah, so it was all open and shut, you might say. The door was shut and it was all open, yeah. And uh, you all slept in that same one room and sorted out your bitches in that, in that as well as your highs. So pretty enlightening. Then there was the whole sex side of life at this newly formed commune. That was something Robert initially struggled with a bit. 
After all, he was married, and society at large in the late 70s was pretty staunchly monogamous, in public at least. I must have been married about 10 years, and I hadn't strayed or anything like that. And when the situation arose, I thought, well, it's going to be all right. Will I get a heart on? You know, will I come? What the fuck? Yeah, and it was quite a thing to sort of work through. But eventually, that worry passed. I still had more than my share, probably, <laughs> in that aspect. Yeah, like a pig at the trough, fucking hell. <laughs> yeah. When he talks about his time at Centrepoint, you can tell it wasn't just all the sex and the group therapy that he enjoyed. Robert really liked mucking in and literally building this new community. Mike and I were building on down the end, and I said, well... I'll give you a hand to build what you want to build, Mike, because Mike's very precise. He's a mathematician by trade. And I says, I'll give you a hand as long as I can use the chainsaw. I said, bugger, cutting it by hand or a skilly or that, it's quicker with the chainsaw. So for a little while, White Lightning was the nickname of this shit. In case you're wondering, a skilly is a skill saw, type of saw builders use, doesn't matter. Anyway, there were some frustrations for Robert. Not everyone was as practical as he was. As he found out when one of the old sheep he'd bought to help keep the grass down in a meadow at the commune was killed and served up as a roast dinner. Well, shit, you wouldn't put a skinny old man in a pot and expect him to make a good roast. You know, you'd cut him up into pieces and make mince or a stew. So that's what we were dealing with, people who had gone to the butcher to buy their meat, people um, who had no understanding of the land, no understanding of mechanical maintenance or anything. They're probably bloody fantastic typists and um, talkers. <laughs> Definitely good talkers, yeah. In those early days of Centrepoint, there was a real pioneer feel to the place. There were a few buildings on the land when they bought it, but some people ended up in temporary accommodation while the new buildings were going up. So old car cases, these giant plywood boxes that used to be used for shipping new cars into the country, they were moved onto the property as a short-term fix. Some of them had a bit of polystyrene, some of them didn't. Some of them only just had the black plastic around them and, and a door getting into them in a window maybe and a couple of people, one or two people who'd live in them. And a few of them were down by the creek. The creek that ran through the Centrepoint property was one of the things that made the place feel really special. As Barry said. Sometimes I would walk around and just think, this is just so beautiful. These days, the site where Centrepoint put down its roots is surrounded by housing and a big box shopping centre. There's a massive hardware superstore right across the road, a vast shopping mall and a 25,000-seat sports stadium within walking distance. A busy motorway roars nearby. But in the 1970s, Albany was known for its market gardens and farmland and bush. The hills were covered with trees, exotic pines together with regenerating natives, stands of manuka, kanaka, and even a few kauri, the giants of the forest which once dominated this part of the country but were mostly lost in a succession of tree-felling gold rushes in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Anyway, back to that water that Barry loved so much. The Centrepoint Creek was mostly tranquil, but there was one particular night... There was torrential rain. Remember those car cases that people were sleeping in? And it, we had this real big downfall of rain one night. Some of the car cases were pretty close to the creek. One of them 
was occupied by a woman who was there on her own. And a couple of us says, oh, I wonder how so-and-so's house is. You know, this is about 10 or 11 at night. We just lie around the lounge having a yarn. So we put on coats and we went outside. And there's her car crate just leaving <laughs> to sail down this creek, which was in total flood. Lifted her car case off the piles and it just went downstream. And we managed to grab hold of it and pull it pull it to the side. And she managed to kind of clamber out, um, but it was all in the dark. Yeah, bloody hell. Quite an occasion, you know, I hate to think, because she'd gone to sleep and she took a bit of waking, she wasn't awake. So whether it got down to Lucas Creek and the larger volume down there, she could quite possibly drown, you know, so just little things like that. These kind of <laughs> traumatic incidents happened at times. Because here's the thing about Centrepoint. A lot of the people who joined the place, especially, especially later on, were vulnerable, people in need of shelter of some sort. In later years, I was dealing with people that newly arrived, and I used to talk to people, and I just had this rule of thumb. Nobody comes to Centrepoint because their life is happy. But once they were there, they were joining a utopian community with radical ideas, a wild social experiment, and it was run by people who weren't always taking good care. People whose recklessness went way beyond plonking a little hut on the banks of a flood-prone creek. People who weren't always thinking about the things we need to do to keep each other safe. In the years following that stormy night, Centrepoint will become notorious. Centrepoint has done for communities what uh, the Hindenburg did for airships. It'll be the subject of documentaries, a play that was never performed, a film, numerous books and hundreds of newspaper and magazine articles. Yet we found, while making this podcast, there are still so many stories that haven't been heard before. He walked out to the corridor, closed the door and he said, well, that's him fucked. And she did a spin and her skirt flew up in the air and she had nothing on underneath, which was really quite a surprise. But also, we wanted to ask some big questions. Sexual promiscuity, for want of another word, is that really breaking free? Or is that just playing into the, the hands of, of what men want? You know? There are crimes, but this isn't so much a whodunit as a why-done-it. And I don't understand how educated people and intelligent people did what they did. Do you want to stop for a flounder? Episode 1 of The Commune, a Stuff production. It was written, researched, produced and presented by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Mixing by Andrew McDowell of DigiCake, music by Audio Network. For more information about the show, head to stuff.co.nz slash thecommune.
If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.